0: You're listening to the Crime Valley Podcast, a place where we search for the missing, remember the forgotten, and shine a light on the wrongfully convicted. The Editor, by John Grisham, Oxford, Mississippi, the 30th of October, 2018. Dear Editor, please forgive an outsider for meddling in your politics. I wouldn't normally think of doing so. However, I know a lot of the history behind a certain job that's on the November ballot. I urge the good folks in the 22nd Judicial District to remember these six innocent men. Ron Williamson. Convicted of murder in Ada in 1987 and sentenced to death, exonerated by DNA in 1999, an innocent man. Dennis Fritz, convicted of murder in Ada in 1987 and sentenced to life, exonerated by DNA in 1999, an innocent man. Calvin Lee Scott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1983, and served 20 years before being exonerated by DNA in 2003. An innocent man. Perry Lott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1988, and served 30 years before being cleared by DNA in July 2018. An innocent man. Tommy Ward, convicted of rape and murder in Ada in 1985, and still serving time. An innocent man. Carl Fontenot, convicted of rape and murder in Ada in 1985 and still serving time, an innocent man. These six men were wrongfully convicted before the availability of DNA testing. Their alleged crimes were investigated by the same authorities and prosecuted by the same district attorney's office. Their fraudulent convictions were obtained by the use of lying jailhouse snitches, junk science, coerced confessions and eyewitness identifications that were manipulated. Ron Williamson, Dennis Fritz, and Calvin Lee Scott were fully exonerated and received compensation, though Ron and Dennis were forced to file suit. The taxpayers of Ada paid for some of the damages. Perry Lott served 30 years and was released last July in the face of overwhelming DNA evidence. However, the current district attorney, Paul Smith, refused to acknowledge this. Perry was forced to enter a bogus guilty plea just to get out of prison. He will not be compensated. For Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot, the clock is still ticking after 33 years. In their case, the crime scene and the investigation were bungled so badly that the real killers may never be found. Six innocent men were convicted in only five years and the damage continues. With a population of 18,000, Ada ranks as one of the worst places in the country for wrongful convictions per capita. It's time to stop convicting innocent people. The 22nd has not had a district attorney election in 28 years. It's time to start cleaning up the mess by bringing some integrity to the office. Sincerely, John Grisham, Oxford, Mississippi. Author, The Innocent Man. Hello everyone and welcome to Crime Valley Podcast. I'm your host Amber and today's episode is part three and the final installment in the murder of Denise Haraway and the subsequent convictions of Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. If you haven't yet listened to part one and two, then go ahead and do that now. For everyone else, just to give you a quick recap, in part two I discussed the suspect confessions given by Tommy and Carl. Odell Titsworth's Lucky Escape, The Trials and Convictions of Carl and Tommy, and finally, the information brought to light by Robert Mayer's book, The Dreams of Ada. Part 3 will tie everything up and bring us to where Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot stand today. Now let's begin. In 2006, author John Grisham published his first and only non-fiction book, titled The Innocent Man. The book delved into the 1982 murder of an Ada woman named Debbie Sue Carter and also introduced the Denise Haraway case and the circumstances surrounding the convictions of Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. The innocent man drew attention to the fact that in both cases, so-called dream confessions were used by detectives and that the same prosecutor and many of the same detectives worked on both cases. John Grisham's book also showed the troubling parallels and the dubious law enforcement practices in both cases. On the 8th of December 1982, Debbie Sukarta was found dead in her apartment. Debbie had been brutally raped and murdered. She had fought hard, and that was evidenced by the chaotic scene and from the injuries to her body. Debbie's death caused shock and fear to the residents of Ada, and 16 months later, when Denise Haraway was abducted and murdered... Debbie's case remained unsolved. It was said that Debbie Sue Carter's death was only the second homicide case that Captain Dennis Smith had worked. Denise Haraway's homicide would be his third. The Smith family had known Debbie and she was friends with one of Dennis Smith's children. Understandably, he took her murder very personally. Years would go by without a conviction. And then, just like Tommy Ward three years earlier, a man named Ron Williamson had a dream. Ron was a man with a lot of demons. Once a promising baseball star, injuries had ruined that dream. He was living under a cloud of alcohol, mental illness and bad decisions. He was loud, boisterous and intimidating to a lot of people. A loose cannon who repelled rather than attracted. Ron did have a friend though, a man named Dennis Fritz. If Dennis hadn't taken such a hit in life, then he probably would never have met Ron Williamson. Dennis had been a schoolteacher with a beautiful wife and daughter. He had met his wife Mary in college, and the two had fallen in love. On Christmas night in 1975, Mary Fritz was shot dead by the teenage nephew of her next-door neighbour and landlord. Dennis Fritz was inconsolable, and with the help of his mother, tried to juggle his job with the raising of his young daughter. Ron and Dennis had met at a difficult time in both of their lives, and formed a bond in May 1987 police arrested Ron Williamson based on a dream that they say he had Dennis Fritz was also arrested purely because of his association with Ron Williamson Glenn Gore was a star witness for the prosecution and he placed Ron Williamson at the coachlight bar on the night that Debbie was murdered Gore said that on that night Debbie had asked him to save her from Ron Williamson's unwanted attention At trial, the evidence now suggested that Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Debbie Carter. Hairs found in her bedroom were linked to the two men and both men were non-secretors, just like the semen collected as evidence. Remember Terry Holland, the jailhouse informant who had testified that Carl had confessed to Denise Haraway's murder? Well, Terry would testify again this time against Ron Williamson. Terry Holland explained in great and graphic detail the things that Ron Williamson had told her that he had done to Debbie Carter. It is interesting to note that Terry Holland supposedly heard both Carl's and Ron's confessions during the same jail stay back in 84-85. When Terry Holland testified in court, Ron Williamson erupted. He shouted at Terry and called her a liar, Instead of seeing an angry man who had been set up, the people in the courtroom saw a scary, unhinged monster capable of committing murder. At the end of the trial, Rom was sentenced to death, and Dennis Fritz received life in prison. The two men would spend years in jail before a letter written by Dennis Fritz was received by the Innocence Project. The project would take on the men's cases, and in 1999, after serving 11 years for a crime they did not commit. Ron and Dennis were freed. DNA evidence not only proved that Ron and Dennis were innocent, but it also implicated the actual killer. The real perpetrator was none other than Glenn Gore. Gore was seen by multiple witnesses approaching Debbie after the bar had closed. One of the witnesses knew that Debbie was scared of Gore, and another saw her push him away. He had a history of giving Debbie trouble, and people close to Debbie knew that she was leery of him. Somehow, during the initial investigation, Glenn Gore had been glossed over. He had not given hair and saliva samples, and the witness reports placing him with Debbie may as well have not existed. Glenn Gore would eventually be tried and sentenced to death for Debbie Sue Carter's murder. A subsequent second trial would end with Gore receiving a life sentence. A 2013 article published on the Innocence Project's news page described the fact that knowledge of Carl Fontenot's case had become more widespread after John Grisham published his book, The Innocent Man, in 2006. Although the book focused on the case of Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz, it served to highlight the fact that there were questionable goings-on in the town of Ada, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Innocence Project director, Tiffany Murphy, was quoted as saying, We firmly believe that an innocent man has been in prison for nearly 30 years for a crime he did not commit. We also know that more than 800 pages of records were not turned over to the defence during Carl's trials. She went on to say that It is our belief that the evidence we discovered during the course of our investigation into the case proves that Carl was not involved. On the 24th of July 2013, Nine months shy of the 30th anniversary of Denise Haraway's disappearance and ultimate murder, the slow wheels of justice were starting to turn in Carl Fontenot's favour. An application for post relief conviction was filed in the District Court of Pontotoc County. The state filed its response over a year later, on the 17th of September, 2014. Fontenot filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus seeking relief from the state court convictions. After that, he was engaged in discovery, served multiple subpoenas and conducted depositions. The court then authorised discovery and production and review of the Pontotoc County District Attorney's files. Several subpoenas were served on the Ada Police Department, who stated that no such documents existed. Then, within the DA files... Fontenot's counsel found that reports were never disclosed to Carl Fontenot's original defence counsel. Due to this, Carl's counsel was allowed to file an amended petition. After this audit was conducted, documents were miraculously produced by the APD, although these documents were never given to Carl Fontenot. Tommy Ward had in fact received these documents after a subpoena was issued during state post convictions proceedings. At the time, they were not turned over to Carl's counsel, but once Carl's counsel discovered this, they then requested the records and subsequently received them. Because of this, the court then allowed Carl Fontenot to file an instant second amended petition. In 2018, Netflix released a documentary based on John Grisham's book, The Innocent Man. The documentary focused on both the Debbie Sue Carter case and the Denise Haraway case. When you watch the interview portion of the documentary, Tommy Ward's demeanour seems very subdued. He looks and sounds depleted. When he says the name Odell Titsdale instead of Titsworth, he is corrected by the detective. He looks uncomfortable and laughs nervously at his mistake before correcting himself. When you watch Carl Fontenot, you can see immediately that he is a people pleaser and very agreeable. If you watch the documentary and focus on the way that both Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot Separately describe Denise Haraway's blouse, it may strike you as odd. Let's compare Denise Haraway's sister, Janet Weldon's description of the blouse, to Tommy's description. In an undated police report, Janet said, A light, lavender-coloured blouse that was very lightly tinted. It had blue flowers on it and it had lace around the collar with elastic sleeves. The shirt was made of thin material and buttoned down the front. In the undated prosecutorial summary, Janet's description was a light lavender-coloured blouse with small blue flowers on it. It had lace around the collar and gathered with elastic on the sleeves and buttoned down the front. Tommy started his description of the blouse saying that it had little blue roses with a fringe deal around the sleeves. The detectives asked him if he meant lace, to which Tommy replied yes. When Carl gave a description of the blouse he said that it had lace around the neck with elastic in the sleeves and when asked by the detective if it was a button-up shirt he said that it was. Remember that the detectives have always denied having any knowledge of this particular blouse at the point where they interrogated Tommy and Carl. It seems like quite a boon then that both Tommy and Carl were able to list nearly all of the identifying features listed by Janet Weldon in the undated report. When either man didn't accurately stick to the correct description of the blouse, there was a helpful detective to steer him back to the correct description. It may also strike you as odd that the two men who were not articulate and who supposedly kidnapped, raped and murdered a woman six months before would both so accurately describe a blouse that the victim was wearing. Not impossible, but definitely implausible. During Tommy Ward's 1989 retrial, a missing persons report, dated April 29, 1984, listed the blouse as size 7, played colour unknown. Over two decades later, Tommy Ward's defence received the same report, but this time there was an additional notation, where the blouse was described as possibly lavender, with blue flowers and lace around the neckline. Why was Janet Weldon's police report and the prosecutorial summary both undated? We know that Denise's sister thought of the floral blouse and went looking for it within days of Denise's disappearance. We also know that Janet testified that she never mentioned the blouse to detectives until after the October 1984 arrests. Yet when Tommy and Carl described the blouse, it sounded very much like Janet Weldon's detailed description. During Tommy and Carl's confessions... Detectives were quick to correct, guide and to ask Tommy and Carl to elaborate on the blouse details. Remember that off-duty police officer Richard Holcomb described that Denise had been wearing a pastel blouse with a print or design. When Denise Haraway's remains were found, there was a scrap of red and white striped fabric and a red and gold earring recovered at the scene. Lastly, before his trial, Tommy claimed the detectives offered him a choice between a red-striped blouse and a pale blouse with lace and blue flowers. The question is, how could Tommy have possibly been aware of both blouses, unless detectives had knowledge of this first? A guilty Tommy would only be aware of the blouse that Denise had worn that night. In the documentary, an interview with a journalist named Stacy Shelton further highlighted the way that the state appeared to conveniently suppress information which didn't suit their narrative of events. Stacy recounted the story of how she was a reporter and attending the joint trial of Carl Fontenot and Tommy Ward back in 1985. When Stacy heard the Tommy Ward interviews being played, she was shocked to hear Tommy give the Gordon Calhoun keg party as his alibi, a keg party that Stacy herself had attended. The party was being hosted by Gordon Calhoun and his neighbours were Tommy and Carl's friends, Jeanette and Mike Roberts. Stacy clearly remembered Jeanette and some of Jeanette's friends being at the party. She was also absolutely certain that the party had been held on a Saturday, not a Friday. Stacy's job at the time required her to get up and go to work early on Saturday mornings and she made a rule of never going out on Friday nights. Stacy remembered the party clearly because it was a party being thrown for her little brother, Bruce de Prater, in honour of his graduation. The night was also memorable because it was the same night that she went on a first date with a man who would be her boyfriend for the next two years. It was also the first and only time that Stacy had been to the house where the party was being held. Both Carl Fontenot and Tommy Ward had said from the beginning that they were at this party, when Stacy heard Tommy give a detailed description of people who had been at the party and things that the people had been doing, she knew that Tommy had to be telling the truth. Stacy went to Detective Baskins and explained that the detail in which Tommy Ward had described the party meant that he had to have been there. Baskins told Stacy that this could not have been the case, as police logs showed that the party had actually been held on a Friday. This was not true. Police were called to the party multiple times, and there were police reports that would later prove this. When Tommy Ward had his second trial, Stacy Shelton testified for the defense. After she had testified, Stacy said that she was confronted by an unhappy Bill Peterson. The prosecutor wanted Stacy to recant her testimony. Stacy said that Bill Peterson had yelled at her and that he was red-faced, banging his fist on his desk. Peterson insisted over and over that she get back on the stand and recant. Stacy though held firm. Despite the threat of being put back on the stand where Peterson would tear her testimony to shreds, Peterson never did recall her. Stacy's brother Bruce Predator, along with other witnesses, knew Carl Fontino, and they were able to verify that he had been at the party on April 28, 1984. Billy Charlie was the other man whose name was called in around 30 times back in May of 1984. Billy Charlie closely resembled the blonde man in the composite picture. Years later, a man named David Yockey, who grew up with Charlie, would say that he was wild enough and mean enough to have committed the crime. David Yockey knew both Tommy Ward and Billy Charlie. At the time that Denise went missing, Billy Charlie drove a grey pickup truck. Remember how Billy Charlie's parents were his alibi? In the documentary, it was mentioned that there was evidence that Billy Charlie's parents heard someone say over the police scanner, that's Billy Charlie's truck. Tommy Ward recounted a story where he ran into Billy Charlie while they were both being held at McAllister. Billy explained to Tommy that he had been mistaken and that he'd actually been drinking at a local bar on the night that Denise disappeared not at home with his parents, as he had told police. On the 14th of June 2013, an affidavit was given by George Butner. Mr Butner represented Carl Fontenot during the years 1984 to 1988, during Carl's first and second trial, though he did not represent Carl during his appeals. In the affidavit, George Butner describes how he filed multiple pretrial motions requesting discovery and disclosures of records, physical evidence, investigation reports, witness statements, records and other forms of evidence, which had relevance to Denise Haraway's disappearance and murder. Butner also said that he made multiple motions on the record during the preliminary hearing and at various times during the trial, where he asked for access to evidence, police reports and other evidence which was held by law enforcement – and the Pontotoc DA's office. In most cases, these requests were denied. To summarise the affidavit, Mr. Butner was unaware of the following points. That an extensive investigation into Floyd DeGraw by Ada Police Detective Dennis Smith and OSBI agents Gary Rogers and Gary Davis had taken place. That DeGraw was polygraphed and that he showed deception when answering questions relating to Denise Haraway that Floyd DeGraw grew agitated when he was interrogated by Agent Gary Davis and Texas law enforcement, DeGraw's rape conviction in Texas, police reports pertaining to the investigation on DeGraw, the fact that Floyd DeGraw was found with multiple possessions belonging to women in Oklahoma, the fact that Denise Haraway received obscene phone calls in her place of work in the months and weeks leading to her disappearance, Reports from Munro Atkinson, Janet Lyons, James David Watts and others which detailed Denise Haraway's great concern about a man who made obscene phone calls to her only while she was working shifts at McAnally's. A report which provided a list of Denise Haraway's ex-boyfriends given to law enforcement, potentially by her sister Janet. This may have helped to determine if an ex was responsible for the harassing calls Denise was receiving, or if any of them had a motive to harm Denise. Janet's comment that Denise hated working at McAnally's because it had no alarm system, bizarre people would come into the store at night time, and her knowledge that the obscene phone calls had continued to occur. The numerous OSBI reports which supported Carl Fontenot's alibi of having attended Gordon Calhoun's party during the time period that Denise Haraway went missing Impeachment evidence from the OSBI reports in relation to Gordon Calhoun's interview that the party could have been on the weekend of the 27th or 28th of April. This information was vital and would have helped substantiate Carl's alibi. Jeanette Roberts' report pertaining to the party and Carl's attendance, the fact that Ada police officer Larry Scott responded to one of the dispatch calls listed on the state's radio log exhibit... Officer Scott's police report about responding to Gordon Calhoun's party, which supported the alibi that the police were aware of the party. Butner was also not provided with Carl's polygraph statement, where he admits being at the party. Butner finished the affidavit talking about the sworn statement that Tommy Ward made during the preliminary hearing. Butner described how the fact that Ward placed himself at J.P.'s and McAnally's in the presence of Marty Ashley and the fact that Tommy Ward clarified that Carl Fontenot was not with them was helpful to Carl's case. Butner added that he used this in Carl's defence during his joint trial with Tommy Ward, but that he didn't use it at Carl's second trial and that he had no strategic reason for not doing so. What about the man that was mentioned multiple times in lawyer George Butner's affidavit, the man named Floyd DeGraw? Where does he come in as a potentially viable alternate suspect? Floyd Lee DeGraw, as the saying goes, was on the road to nowhere, and at the age of 22 he was known for his unpredictability and a volatile temper. His mother would later say that her son had suffered from psychological problems since he was 12 years old. According to her, this was around the same time that he started sniffing paintbrush cleaners. Floyd DeGraw technically lived in West Virginia, but he was known as a drifter who liked to stop for hitchhikers. On Thursday, the 3rd of May 1984, five days after Denise Haraway's disappearance, he was stopped and arrested by a Department of Public Safety officer in Shamrock, Texas. DeGraw had stolen gas from a service station, and when police searched his car, they found items belonging to multiple people. Interestingly, all of these items led back to Oklahoma a military bag belonging to a man who was last seen by his sister in Lawton, Oklahoma, and a prescription bottle dated the 20th of January 1984, belonging to a man who liked to hitchhike around the country and whose last known whereabouts was at the VA hospital in Oklahoma City in December of 1983. The backseat of the car had been removed and police found women's jewellery, pornographic material depicting violence against women, A purse that was stolen from a woman in Oklahoma City in late January, early February 1984, and most interesting of all, a wallet that had been stolen from a car in around February 1984 from the town of Ada, Oklahoma. Painted on the back window of DeGraw's car were the words, I love Donna. Denise Haraway's legal first name was Donna. But then again, so was the name of the 23-year-old woman that Floyd Lee DeGraw had raped only days before. The Amarillo woman had been picked up, assaulted, and then left naked in a field southeast of Amarillo, Texas. DeGraw had kept her purse and her clothing, which was also found in his vehicle at the time of his Shamrock, Texas arrest. When police realised that he was wanted in Amarillo for rape, They arrested him and by the next day he was being held at the Randall County Jail on a $50,000 bond. Floyd Lee DeGraw was heavily investigated by both the OSBI and the Amarillo Police Department in relation to Denise Haraway's case. In fact, the investigation on DeGraw spanned from his arrest in April of 1984 until at least December of the same year. Remember that Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were arrested in October that year, and yet the OSBI and the APD continued to investigate Floyd DeGraw. So what is known about the investigation? We know that DeGraw very much resembled one of the men in the composite drawings. We also know that Floyd DeGraw lied continuously about his road trip in April of 1984, Floyd's story was that at some point in April of 1984, he had left Detroit in a friend's car, driving west. He claimed that he picked up a hitchhiker named Jeff in Ohio and the two then headed to Memphis, Tennessee, where they visited with a close friend of Jeff's. The two visited for several hours before again travelling west. This was on Friday, April 27th, the day before Denise Haraway's abduction. When questioned about the drive through Oklahoma, DeGraw claimed that the two men travelled through the state via Interstate 40 and that they stopped for gas in Muskogee, but didn't leave the interstate while in Oklahoma. The problem with this story is that Muskogee is 20 miles off Interstate 40. When asked about this discrepancy, DeGraw said that they must have left the interstate after all. A traffic citation from California proved that the duo arrived in the state on April 30, 1984. Floyd DeGraw claimed that apart from his travelling companion, he had given lifts to a male-female couple and two lone males along the way. On the 10th of May 1984, Floyd Lee DeGraw undertook a polygraph test administered by an Amarillo police detective. When asked about his involvement in the Ada kidnapping, if he had seen the woman in the picture when shown a photo of Denise Haraway, he was found to be deceptive. His test was graded as inconclusive, and the Amarillo detective made the suggestion that the OSBI polygraph examiner should review the test. The polygraph charts, along with the questions that were asked and other important information, was given to OSBI agent Davis to pass on. DeGraw was then interviewed by Davis, where he was found to be deceptive about how he obtained the $1,100 that was found on him at the time of his arrest. Floyd DeGraw was then shown a picture of Denise Haraway, In a report written by Davis, DeGraw's reaction to the picture was documented. He held his head in his hands, appearing to break down. He composed himself, lifted his head with very red eyes and said he did not know anything about Haraway. He then became irritable, paced the floor and did not want to answer any more questions. He insisted on being returned to his cell. Nine years later, in 1993... Floyd Lee DeGraw was arrested on a fugitive warrant in Michigan. DeGraw had fled the state of West Virginia after murdering a woman named Adriana Vaught. He remains in prison for that crime. Dennis Dean Reeves and Orville Munro Reeves were convicted of robbery with a dangerous weapon and kidnapping. On the night of August 8, 1984, the two brothers walked into a Circle K convenience store in Tulsa. They purchased something and then they left. Within minutes of leaving the store, Orville returned and asked to use the restrooms. The clerk told him that it was against store policy and he seemed upset by this. He left the store. Not long after this, Dennis entered the store while Orville waited in the car. Dennis pulled a knife on the clerk and demanded the green stuff. She handed him the money from the register. Dennis Reeves then took her by the arm and told her to act like they were boyfriend and girlfriend before leading her out to the car. The terrified woman was forced to sit in the back seat with Dennis, who was still holding the knife. Orville then drove the car out of the parking lot. Thankfully for the woman, there was an angel watching out for her that night. A police officer from the Tulsa Police Department was patrolling the area. He had seen the men drive up to the store, seen Dennis go into the store and walk out arm-in-arm with the clerk. The officer surmised that a clerk wouldn't just leave her store and go off with her boyfriend, so he followed the car and stopped it. The two Reeves brothers were then arrested. This crime occurred three months after Denise was abducted. Dennis Reeves had told the store clerk to act like they were a couple as they left the store. When Jean Welshall and Lenny and David Timmons had seen the man and woman leave McAnally's, the man walked with his arm around the woman's waist and they presented as a pair of lovers. Other similarities included the fact that relatively small amounts of cash were taken at both McAnally's and the Circle K crime, making it likely that the robbery was secondary to kidnapping. It was also said that the Reed brothers resembled the description of the men in the Haraway case. In 2019... The Ada Police Department miraculously produced around 300 pages of previously undisclosed documents. Documents that they had for years claimed not to have. These documents were made up of police interviews, alternative suspects and other possible leads. The documents shed a whole new light on the Denise Haraway case. This information was kept from the defendants and their defence teams who were effectively precluded from mounting an adequate defence and proving their clients' actual innocence. The documents included Brady, exculpatory and impeachment evidence. Now, I will just give a quick definition of each of those terms before I discuss some of the previously undisclosed 2019 evidence. According to the ruling Youngblood v West Virginia, a Brady violation occurs when the government fails to disclose evidence materially favourable to the accused. This court has held that the Brady duty to disclose extends to impeachment evidence as well as exculpatory evidence, and Brady suppression occurs when the government fails to turn over even evidence that is known only to police investigator and not to the prosecutor. Such evidence is material if there was a reasonable possibility that had the evidence been disclosed to the defence, the result of the proceeding would have been different. Although a showing of materiality does not require demonstration by a preponderance of the evidence, that disclosure of the suppressed evidence would have resulted ultimately in the defendant's acquittal, the reversal of a conviction is required upon a showing that the favorable evidence could reasonably be taken to put the whole case in such a different light. As to undermine the confidence in the verdict. Moving on to exculpatory evidence, according to uslegal.com, exculpatory evidence is evidence that favours a defendant in a criminal trial and tends to establish the defendant's innocence. It shows that a defendant had no criminal intent to commit the crime. Exculpatory evidence is the opposite of inculpatory evidence. Inculpatory evidence refers to evidence which tends to show one's involvement in a crime. And finally, according to evidence at impeachment simply means the introduction of evidence that may cast doubt on the credibility of the witness or the validity of the testimony. The following is some of the information that has now been brought to light. Denise Haraway was being stalked and harassed at work. A male caller had been phoning Denise at work. Sometimes he would make lured comments and other times he would breathe heavily into the phone. Denise was deeply disturbed by the phone calls, even telling her sister Janet that she was going to look for another job. On one occasion, a man had called saying that he was going to wait outside the store and watch her while she worked. Denise was already unhappy with having to deal with the weirdos and creepy guys, that she would often encounter during her shift, and she had discussed some of these encounters with both her mother and her sister. This was a similar complaint to that of Patty Hamilton in salmonol the year before. Denise was concerned that McAnullis did not have an alarm system, and she had even told a female customer that she did not feel safe working the evening shift. In the weeks leading up to her disappearance, Denise had asked a male customer named Anthony Johnson... For advice on purchasing a gun. She mentioned the phone calls during their conversation. Johnson asked if it could be an ex-boyfriend making the calls. He felt that Denise was aware of who the man was, but that she did not want to say. Multiple people, both from Denise's inner circle and from McAnally's, were aware of the fact that Denise was receiving these phone calls at work. It is important to note that Denise seemed to only be receiving these calls at work, and that the calls were only made to McAnally's during her shifts. According to Steve Haraway, Denise hadn't received one of these calls in weeks, but according to Denise's co-worker, the calls had started up again. Denise had also told her sister Janet that she was receiving the calls again. The store manager, Munro Atkinson, remembered that he had a conversation with Steve Haraway. They discussed the fact that a Vietnam War veteran had been bothering Denise. Mr Atkinson had actually seen the man and he shared this information with police. The man was described as being a white male, 6 feet, 190 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. He had a moustache, a light complexion and he usually drove a white Chevrolet Chevette. Multiple people told police about the phone calls but it appeared that it wasn't followed up on. The information certainly was not given to the defence. College student Jim Moyer was the only person who actually placed Tommy Ward at McAnally's on the night of the 28th of April, 1984. What the defence team and the public didn't know is that Moyer may have had a monetary motive for placing Ward at McAnally's. Jim Moyer had written to the OSBI director on the 4th of April, 1989. This was two months before the retrial was due to take place. In the letter, Jim Moyer confirmed that at the pending retrial, he would identify Tommy Ward again as being the man that he saw in McAnally's. The main reason for writing the letter, however, seemed to be the fact that Moyer wanted to confirm his right to collect some of the $5,000 reward money offered on the case. Moyer also made reference to the fact that after the initial trial in 1985, he had received a letter from Prosecutor Bill Peterson telling him that without Moyer's testimony, a guilty verdict could not have occurred. Also included in his letter was a newspaper clipping dated May 1st, 1984, just three days after Denise Haraway was abducted. The clipping announced a reward offered to the public for information on the case. What Jim Moyer didn't know was that despite his testimony, he actually wasn't eligible for the reward money. The reward posted back in 1985 was for information leading to the location of Denise Haraway. Despite being Bill Peterson's star witness, Jim Moyer's testimony was problematic. It was problematic because it kept changing. He had been interviewed by the Ada Police Department on the thirtieth of April and again in early november nineteen eighty four, shortly after Tommy and Carl were arrested. On both occasions, Moyer described the suspect as blonde haired, average height, and weight. It was a vague description with no details surrounding what the suspect was wearing. However, at the retrial in 1989, Moyer had expanded his description. The suspect was now dressed in a light colored t shirt, blue jeans, and tennis or track shoes. He described the shoes as low cut with laces. When he was first interviewed in April 1984, and then at the 1989 retrial, Moyer said that the two men that entered McAnally's came into the store when Moyer was already inside. However, in his November 1984 interview, he said that the first man was in the back of the store when he arrived at McAnally's, and that the second man walked into the store and walked past him after this. During his interview on November 6, 1984, Jim Moyer chose a photo out of the ward folder. The photo was labeled number one, and it was chosen because the man in the photo most resembled the man that Moyer saw in McAnally's. The interesting thing is that the police report does not name the man in the photograph. He would later say at trial that he was unable to pick Tommy Ward out of the photo lineup. Jim Moyer would, however, months later pick Tommy Ward out of a live lineup. Moya chose number two from the Titsworth folder when picking the man who most resembled the second man he had seen at McAnally's. Moya was not given the option of choosing a man from the Fontenot folder. Remember that the original idea was that Odell was the main man. Both confessions had put him in the store. Tommy Ward had been marked by law enforcement as the man in the Karen Wise composite, but there was no witness ID that even remotely resembled Carl. If Odell hadn't had that broken arm, how were law enforcement and the prosecution going to work him into the picture, considering that there were only two men in the composite? Jim Moyer's identification of Tommy Ward at McAnally's was also effectively saying that Tommy Ward had been in two places at once. How could Tommy Ward have been seen at J.P.'s by Karen Wise and by Jack Pascal from 7pm until 8.30pm and also have been seen by Jim Moyer at McAnally's at seven thirty PM. Before the trial, Jim Moyer had been concerned about his identification of Carl Fontenau. He realized at the preliminary hearing that Carl was a lot shorter than his own five foot ten, two to three inches shorter. The man that he had seen in the store was definitely taller than Moyer's five foot ten. He attempted to call Bill Peterson by phone in the months before trial, but Peterson never returned his calls. He had seen the man referred to as Jason Lurch in the back of the courtroom and he felt that he was a much better likeness. He managed to talk to somebody at Bill Peterson's office and was shut down and told in no uncertain terms that the second suspect was not Jason Lurch. When Carl Fontenot's second trial started, Denise Haraway's remains had already been found. His defence was able to view the 43-page coroner's report It would later be found that pages had been withheld from the defence, containing information which could have proved doubt over Carl's and indeed Tommy's involvement. The missing pages included the following report by a medical examiner. The crime scene where Denise Haraway's remains were found was not properly searched and processed. On the 21st of the 1st, 1986, at 16.50 hours. I returned a call to Hughes County District Attorney Bill Peterson concerning some bones that were found. Mr. Peterson didn't know anything about the discovery, but they are thought to be the remains of a missing store clerk, Donna Denise Haraway. No ME was notified. He stated that the OSBI lab people out of Oklahoma City did photo the scene and that they just had a field day picking up bones. No diagrams. The OSBI agent out of McAllister never showed up at the scene. Mr. Peterson believes that the bones are en route to Oklahoma City but didn't know for sure. The sheriff didn't know where the bones were but thought that the OSBI had them. Notified the OSBI in Oklahoma City and spoke with Rick Spence. He didn't have the bones but thought that the lab man, David Dixon, had them. I spoke with the sheriff, Orville Rose, who didn't know where they were. Finally, the OSBI found them in their lab and delivered them at 2040 hours by Anne Reid. Come to find out the bones were found by a trapper. Several problems with this case. Number one, no one notified a county medical examiner which would have been more than happy to go to the scene. Number two, since no one notified a medical examiner or the DA, they had no legal authority to remove the body. Number three, this is Tulsa's jurisdiction, so therefore the remains should have been transported to Tulsa. Number four, if this is not Donna Haraway, they've screwed up the crime scene. Number five, no one seems to give a shit and provide Oklahoma City medical examiners with any information on Miss Haraway. Another part of the report that was not turned over to the defence was findings by forensic anthropologist Dr Richard McWilliams. His assessment was that the remains found were that of a woman less than 35 years of age, and more likely 25 years of age, who had given birth to at least one child. This assessment was made due to a kind of pitting found in the pubic bones that are seen in a woman who has given birth vaginally. As there is no indication that Denise had ever given birth prior to going missing, it became a question of whether she may have been pregnant at the time of her disappearance. It was reported that prior to her disappearance, Denise had told Karen Wives from J.P.'s that she was three months pregnant. Karen then shared this information with a female friend of hers. If this was true, then it would mean that Denise had been kept alive after her disappearance and that she had given birth before her remains were found 23 months later. In February 1986, a month after Denise's remains were found, There were even more questionable practices allowed at the Gertie scene. College students, along with Denise Haraway's family members, were allowed to go to the crime scene and conduct a search. More bone fragments were found at this time. A farmer also found bone fragments, along with a watch found in a rat's nest. There is no evidence that the watch was checked forensically or that an attempt was made to see if it belonged to Denise Haraway. An engagement ring worn by Denise has never been found. Karen Wise had told law enforcement that there were four men in JPs the night that Denise disappeared. She felt that it wasn't fair to assume that the men were involved in a crime just because they had been in the area. Karen was reluctant to help police to create the composite picture. It bothered her that they were only interested in two of the men at JPs that night, the two men who she didn't know. Karen had met with DA Bill Peterson prior to giving her court testimony. During this meeting, she explained to Bill Peterson that the men in the composite picture were not the men who had scared her on the night of April 28th. There were two other men in JPs at the same time who were scaring her with their behaviour. Karen Wise identified the men as two locals named Bubba Dags and Jim Bob Howard. Peterson's response to Wise was that they already had the ones who did it and that Jim Bob Howard could not have committed the murder because he didn't have the IQ of a grubworm. Karen Wise was warned not to mention this at trial because it was not relevant. Tommy Ward was unaware that Karen Wise had actually named the other two men. It would be years later that Tommy and Carl's defence teams would hear about Bubba Dags and Jim Bob Howard. Karen Wise would later say that it bothers me that I couldn't discuss the other two men, because I don't think all of the truth came out. A newly discovered report shows that Jim Bob Howard had been interviewed by Detective Smith. It is interesting to note that he was interviewed on November the 16th, 1984, a month after Tommy and Carl's arrests. Jim Bob Howard had no alibi. He couldn't remember where he had been that night. He had been a customer of JP's in the past, but he denied knowing that there were any pool tables in the store. No documents have been found to show that Bubba Dags was ever interviewed. Tommy Ward never mentioned J.P.'s in his confession. If Tommy had in fact been at J.P.'s that night, then Jim Bob Howard and Bubba Dags could have been used to either implicate or exclude Tommy Ward as a suspect. Why did the state want to hide the fact that Howard and Dags had been identified as being at J.P.'s that night? Until 2019... Tommy Ward's defence team did not know about a witness named James Boardman. In 1984, Boardman worked for the Ada newspaper. On the 28th of April 1984, he went to McAnally's at around 5pm. He noticed two men who were behaving strangely. After Denise disappeared, police conducted an interview with James Boardman, where he described the two men. He picked a photo labelled number one out of the ward file. This was the same picture chosen by Jim Moyer. Yet again, police did not write down the name of the man in the photograph. To this day, the photo spread has never been produced by the state. James Boardman was unable to choose a photo from the Fontenot and Titsworth folders. Unlike Jim Moyer, James Boardman was not asked to participate in a live lineup. Why did Jim Moyer attend the ward live lineup and not Jim Moyer? They both chose the same photo out of the Tommy Ward file, after all. Why this discrepancy between these two potential witnesses? There were only three customers from McAnally's who testified at the retrial, who indicated that they were in the store on the date in question, and that they had been in the presence of Denise Haraway. In the newly released documents, there were multiple police interview reports from other people who had been customers at McAnally's on the 28th of April, 1984. Using information from the documents that were finally produced by the APD in 2019, the following is a timeline of the known customers who went to McAnally's on the 28th of April 1984. James Boardman worked for the Ada newspaper. On the evening of the 28th, Boardman went to McAnally's at about 5pm. While he was in the store, he noticed two men who he described as acting funny – He described the first man as six foot tall with brown hair, wearing a brown shirt and blue jeans. The second man was described by Boardman as being six foot tall with blonde hair and wearing a blue plaid flannel type shirt. He felt that the two men were driving a light coloured pickup truck. When asked what she may have been wearing, James Boardman thought that Denise was wearing a blue short sleeve t shirt and blue jeans. Dawn Turner came to McAnally's between 5.30 and 6pm. She said that there was a large, heavy-set man who was causing uneasiness in Denise because he had been standing at the magazine rack for 45 minutes. When Edna Elaine Harris was in the store between 7.10 and 7.20pm, she saw a blond haired man standing by a van in the parking lot. She thought that he was acting suspicious. At seven thirty PM Steve Moyer arrived at McAnally's to buy cigarettes. He saw a pickup truck parked between the door and the ice machine. The truck was a sixty seven to sixty nine Chevrolet that was light grey and rough looking. He said that he looked at the license plate, but that he couldn't remember it. He saw a dark haired man walk into the store, and then a blonde haired man shortly after that. He left within a few minutes of the men arriving. Richard Holcomb was at McAnally's at just after 7.30pm that night. He was the off-duty Ada police officer who testified at trial as to what Denise had been wearing. As soon as he heard about Denise Haraway's abduction on the morning of the 29th of April, he found lead detectives Dennis Smith and Mike Baskins and told them about his trip to the store the night before. At the time, Holcomb felt that the two men were dismissive and not interested in the information that he had to share. Neither of the detectives formally interviewed Holcomb and he felt that they were condescending when he was unable to locate his purchase on the store register tape. It was difficult to do due to the fact that the purchases were listed as individual prices. At trial, the only information that the prosecution wanted from Holcomb was in regards to what Denise was wearing that night, even though Holcomb had other information that seemed extremely pertinent to the case. Richard Holcomb said, I recall stopping at McAnally's when it was barely light out. I parked my vehicle near the west corner of the building. I believe I bought a six-pack of beer, a loaf of bread, and maybe some other things. I knew Denise Haraway and spoke to her outside McAnally's that night. There was no one else at the store when I stopped at McAnally's. However, one woman did step in and lay a penny on the counter, telling Denise that she had given her too much change back for a previous gas purchase. Both Denise and I thought that was odd, for the woman to bring back a penny. Everything in the store, including Denise, seemed normal. I did not detect tension or anything wrong. While standing at the counter making small talk with Denise, I recall seeing two vehicles sitting on the eastern edge of the pavement outside, just to the east of the gas pumps. These vehicles were parked parallel with the drivers facing each other and the drivers were apparently talking. One vehicle was a Ford Torino or Mercury Montego. The other vehicle was a Chevy or GMC pickup truck painted primer grey. The pickup had a straight conventional bed. I believe these vehicles were still parked next to each other when I left McAnally's to drive home. Holcomb felt that based on his own memory and the fact that Civil Twilight was at 7.36pm that night, that he must have been at the store somewhere in the vicinity of 7.30 and 7.45pm. 7. 22-year-old John McInnes was a regular customer at McInnelly's. John worked for an oil field business belonging to an Ada company, and he lived in a trailer about seven miles east of Ada. John was well acquainted with Denise Haraway from his frequent stops at the store. John McInnes described Denise as a happy and nice-looking woman with a bubbly personality. He enjoyed their interactions and knew that Denise was either teaching or studying to teach, although he was unaware that Denise was married. On the night of Denise's abduction, John was at McAnally's between 7.50 and 8pm. He purchased a few items and paid with a $20 note and then left. Later that night, John saw news of Denise's abduction on the local news station. He started thinking about his stop at McAnally's earlier that night and remembered that there had been a man standing behind the counter with Denise. The man was only a few feet away from her, and he seemed to be unhappy or concerned about something. McInnes assumed that he was a boyfriend or husband of Denise, who John felt was being her usual happy and normal self, although he did describe the atmosphere as tense Though the previously undisclosed police report stated that McInnes had not seen any vehicles, John McInnes said that this was not accurate. John said that he saw a lone vehicle parked in the front area of McAnally's that night. He assumed that the vehicle belonged to the unknown man behind the counter. The vehicle was a 1978 Chevy pickup truck in a light colour that may have been white. It had grey primer spots over the body. Worried that the man may have been involved in Denise Haraway's disappearance, John McInnes called police to tell them his story. A dispatcher took John's details, and later that night, Detective Baskin called him back. As he spoke with John McInnes, Detective Baskin was able to locate his purchase on the store register roll. McInnes then went on to describe the man who stood behind the counter with Denise. He felt that the man was bigger than him, Standing at between five foot ten and six foot one, and weighing about two hundred and ten pounds, the man had light-coloured hair which was not long and a full beard. McInnes also said that the man was twenty-two or maybe a bit older, and that he was wearing a white t-shirt and some kind of work pants which could have been khaki or blue jeans. McInnes described the man as less a college student and more a construction worker, clean and not rough-looking and that he appeared to have worked that day, although he wasn't dirty. John McInnes was quite clear about the truck he had seen. He knew that it was a 78 or 77 Chevy, because it had the new body style, which had changed from the old style of 75 to 76. He also remembered that the bed was short and conventional. At some point, John McInnes was informed that his information was not relevant to the Denise Haraway case, And that the man behind the counter that night was somebody that police were already aware of. He recalls that he was told, Oh, yeah, we know who that was. John McInnes never spoke to a detective face to face. Any interviews by detectives were done informally over the phone. It is important to note that John McInnes knew both Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot by sight, and that McInnes specified that the man behind the counter that night was neither Tommy nor Carl. Gary Haney said that he was in the store that night, along with his son, at around 8pm. He believes that he stayed in the store for 10-12 to minutes. Haney said that nothing unusual happened while he was in the store. His purchase occurred after that of John McInnes. Guy Keyes arrived at McAnally's at around 8.25pm. He said that Denise was behind the counter. Junie Alford went to McAnally's a short time before Denise disappeared. He had gone to the store to buy soap. When he walked into McAnally's, he saw a man standing next to the front door. Junie Alford spoke to the man, but the man never responded. Junie remembered that the man had dark hair parted on the side and that it was kind of slicked down. Junie thought that Denise may have been wearing blue jeans and a light pullover blouse. When he left McAnally's, Junie saw that there was a chalky grey coloured pickup truck parked outside the store. Lenny and David Timmons and Jean Walshall arrived at McAnally's at around 8.30pm. They saw the man and woman leave the store and get into a pickup truck. The official timeline has them arriving within five minutes of Guy Keys. However, there were three transactions on the register tape in between Guy Keys and Lenny, David and Jean arriving. Jean Walshall made the call to police at 8.50pm and his purchase was rang up at 9pm. Carrie McClure was at the store between 8 to 8.30pm. Carrie thought that she may have been the last person to see Denise Haraway before her abduction. Jimmy Simpson went to McAnally's on the night of the 28th and found the store unattended. He went and got a Coke out of the icebox and then went to the store's back room door to let the missing staff member know that they had a customer. When no staff member emerged, Jimmy left the store. He said that he saw a car with three or four people standing around it. The car may have been a GM. He also saw a pickup on the east side of McAnally's. The pickup had a man in the driver's seat with a woman next to him. Jimmy also noticed a man outside of McAnally's when he first went into the store. He thought that the man was Odell Titsworth. Jimmy had gone to school with Odell. Later on, Jimmy would be unable to pick Odell Titsworth from a photo lineup. Before the Timmons brothers and Gene Walshall arrived at the store, a family went to McAnally's to buy gas and said that they found the store unattended. Who were the customers that shopped at McAnally's in the very short time between Guy Keys leaving and the Timmons brothers and Gene Walshall arriving? What did the family who stopped to buy gas and found the store unattended do and see? Gene Walshall and his nephews were the state's only eyewitnesses In recent court documents, it appears that the primed pickup truck seen by Officer Holcomb is believed to be the same pickup truck belonging to the man standing behind the counter with Denise. It is believed that whoever was driving that white pickup truck was responsible for or was witness to whatever happened to Denise in the store that night. Obviously, the question is, who was this mystery man seen by John McInnes and sighted in his truck by Officer Holcomb? Why did detectives dismiss the man and his possible involvement in Denise Haraway's abduction and say that they knew who the man was and that he was irrelevant to the case? If his irrelevance is true, why wasn't he named and his presence that night explained? Furthermore, who was the person in the green Ford Torino or Mercury Montego seen talking to the mystery pickup truck driver while the two men were both in their respective vehicles? Did police ever identify the driver of the green vehicle? How could Jean Walshell and Lenny and David Timmons be the last people to see Denise Haraway at McAnally's when people had arrived before them and found the store unattended? Was Denise being kept out in the storeroom until that point? Are we certain that the woman seen leaving McAnally's by Lenny, David and Jean was definitely Denise Haraway? Could a customer who came into McAnally's after Denise went missing have helped themselves to the money in the cash register? The police theory was based around the idea that the two men had left J.P.'s at around 8.30pm and driven to McAnally's, where they abducted Denise Haraway within minutes of their arrival. Given that we now have a timeline which includes many more witnesses from McAnally's, we can see further problems with the J.P.'s theory. At least four customers who shopped at McAnally's between 7.30 and 8.30pm that night identified a primed grey pickup truck that was parked outside of McAnally's during this extended period of time. This shows that the truck could not have been the one from JP's. The man seen standing behind the counter by John McInnes suggests that the man who may have abducted her was known to Denise Haraway. Let's also look at Jimmy Simpson's identification of the man standing outside of McAnally's, the one who he initially identified as Odell Titsworth. I don't think that it is a stretch to believe that this is how Odell Titsworth was first brought into the narration. Was this misidentification the reason that Tommy Ward's suspect confession contained Odell Titsworth? because a previously undisclosed witness at McAnally's had told law enforcement that they thought they had seen Odell at the store that night. Remember, the detectives only recorded the confession portion of Tommy Ward's interrogation on October the 18th, 1984. Where were the other eight to nine hours of videotaped interrogation that led up to the confession? Let's talk about the pickup truck that was supposedly seen at both J.P.'s and McAnally's on the 28th of April 1984. Whether you believe that there were two separate trucks or only one, the descriptions are all over the place. The OSBI's report described the truck as an early model Chevy pickup truck with light grey primer, a narrow bed, oversized tyres on the rear with a jacked up rear end. The descriptions of the truck at McAnally's given by David and Lenny Timmons and Gene Walshall are not particularly cohesive. Lenny Timmons described the truck as a green and grey colour, which was an older-style Chevy pickup that was not well cared for. He felt that the rear wheels and tyres were plain. David Timmons felt that the truck was blue in colour and that it was rough with dents in its side. He thought that the rear bumper was white and that the truck may have been raised in the rear. Gene Walshall described the truck as light in colour and full-sized. He felt that it may have been an early 1970s model, but he was certain that it didn't have a narrow bed. The following are the truck descriptions given by customers at McAnally's between the hour of 7.30 and 8.30 p.m. James Moyer saw a pickup which he described as being a 1967-1969 to 1969 model Chevy pickup that was light grey and rough looking. Moyer was uncertain about his vehicle description when it came to the model. Off-duty officer and customer Richard Holcomb described the truck that he saw as a Chevy or GMC grey primered pickup truck. He said that the truck had a conventional bed. Customer John McInnes saw a 77 to 78 model Chevy pickup, which was light in colour and possibly white. The truck had grey primer spots on its body and a conventional bed. McInnes was very certain that the truck was a 77 to 78 model. Customer Junie Allen saw a chalky grey coloured pickup truck parked outside of McInnelly's. Customer Jimmy Simpson saw a pickup parked on the east side of McInnelly's He saw a man sitting in the driver's seat and a woman sitting in the passenger seat. The store was unattended at this time. If we go up the road to JP's, we have the following truck descriptions. Jack Pascal described the truck as an older model, maybe mid-1960s to early 1970s Chevy, with grey primer paint on the body. He thought that the truck may have had a missing tailgate. He also thought that it was difficult to accurately make out the truck's colour due to the lighting outside of the store. Karen Wise said that the truck was an older model with a short bed and that it may have had a sidestep. Karen thought that there were light-coloured spots on the driver's side door and that there was a darker colour which may have been a reddish-brown primer on it. Karen also indicated that most of the truck was primed. The truck had wide-back tyres and may have had a loud exhaust. All of the witnesses had differing descriptions of the truck, with some of the descriptors sometimes contradicting each other. Even the description given in the OSBI report seems to be a mishmash of some of the identifications. All of the male witnesses who arrived at McAnally's between 7.30 and 8.30pm could possibly have been describing the same truck. However, the Timmons brothers and Jean Walsh's descriptions did not sound like they were describing the same truck as the other witnesses. These three men supposedly arrived at McAnally's around 8.30 p.m., but contradicting factors such as Jimmy Simpson's arrival at the store where he found the store deserted and the family who arrived to buy gas and found the store unattended, plus the three transactions rung up in between Guy Keys leaving the store and David, Lenny and Jean arriving, throws doubt on the timeline. The call came through to dispatch at 8.50 p.m., which would mean that it took the men 20 minutes of being at the store to finally contact police and the store manager. Could it be remotely possible that the man and the woman seen by the three men walking out of McAnally's were actually customers? And another thing, the way that the information was presented, one would think that there was only one or two beat-up Chevy pickup trucks in Ada at the time. In August 2019, US District Court Judge James H. Payne overturned Carl Fontenot's conviction of life without parole. Judge Payne's 190-page report concluded that no rational juror who could set aside the tragedy of Donna Denise Haraway's death could find beyond a reasonable doubt that Carl Fontenot should be convicted based solely on Fontenot's unsubstantiated confession. In the light most favourable to the state... The evidence at trial established beyond a reasonable doubt that Mrs Haraway disappeared on April 28, 1984 and was found dead on April 20, 1986. Beyond these basic facts, the evidence introduced to establish the cause of death, criminal agency and the identity of the person responsible for her death was unreliable, contradictory, uncorroborated or simply non-existent. None of the eyewitnesses identified Mr. Fontenot as the man who left the store with Mrs. Haraway, and they saw only one man with her in the truck as they left. None of the physical evidence, including the body, linked Mr. Fontenot to Mrs. Haraway's disappearance or death. At best, the evidence established Mrs. Haraway died from a gunshot wound to the head or was struck by a stray bullet after she died from unknown causes. In either case, there was no independent evidence suggesting she was raped, stabbed or burned or even taken to any location other than where her remains were found. The court finds no rational juror who was able to set aside the tragedy of Mrs Haraway's death could find beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr Fontenot should be convicted based solely on his unsubstantiated confession. Given the uncontroverted evidence of the petitioner's mental and psychological impairments, the material discrepancies between the physical evidence and the story the petitioner told the police, the absence of evidence to corroborate his version of events, and the circumstances surrounding his coerced confession, the court finds no reasonable juror would have convicted the petitioner. Judge Payne ordered that Carl's second amended writ of habeas corpus was granted, and that within 120 days, the state grant him a new trial or permanently release him from custody. Carl Allen Fontenot was finally released from prison on Thursday, the 19th of December, 2019. Carl had been imprisoned for over 35 years. Almost one year later, on December 20th, 2020, Tommy Ward had his turn. A ruling was made in a Pontotoc County court by Pontotoc County District Judge Paula Ng. Part of the conclusion read, The Pontotoc County District Attorney's Office relied solely on investigators to provide it with the evidence needed to prosecute the case, without questioning whether the investigators had turned over all exculpatory and or impeachment evidence. The investigators seemed to have taken on the roles of prosecutor, judge and jury, determining that only the relevant evidence was evidence which fit with their theory of the case. It also seems highly probable the District Attorney's Office knew favourable evidence was being suppressed and turned a blind eye, as in the case of Peterson's instruction to Wise, not to mention Howard and Daggs being at J.P.'s the night Haraway disappeared. The process of suppressing favourable evidence to Ward is fundamentally unfair and has deprived him of his right to a fair trial. He has been denied due process as guaranteed by the Federal and State Constitutions. The cumulative effect of the material evidence withheld by the State as identified herein creates a reasonable probability the outcome of the trial would have been different given the burden of proof required for a conviction. No person is to be deprived of liberty and life without due process of law, which includes a right to be free from conviction except upon proof beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt. Ward has asked for exculpatory and or impeachment evidence for over 30 years, both prior to trial and post-trial. Finally, in 2019, the Ada Police Department turned over 300 pages of police documents. After representing to Ward's attorneys for years, the department had no documents relating to the Haraway case. For the first time... Ward discovered that there were problems with the credibility of the state's witnesses and the existence of witnesses that raised serious doubts as to the accuracy of witnesses identifying Ward as a guilty party. It would only take one juror out of 12 to find the state had failed to prove Ward guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, keeping Ward from being convicted of murdering Haraway. Ward was arrested after his videotaped confession on October 18th, 1984, and he has remained in custody for over 35 years. Due to the passage of time, the court is of the opinion that Ward would not be able to receive a fair trial. The court then vacated and set aside judgments and sentences entered against Ward on July 10th, 1989 and dismissed charges originally filed against him. It ordered that Tommy be released from the custody of the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. On January seventh, 2021, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that Tommy Ward would remain in prison while the state appealed the county court's ruling. In July 2021, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals denied an amicus brief, which had been filed by four prominent Oklahoman lawyers. An amicus brief is essentially a legal document supplied to a court of law, containing advice or information relating to a case from a person or organisation that is not directly involved in the case. This particular brief's focus was to be on withheld documents. Tommy Ward remains in prison while his legal team continues to fight to have him freed. But some wonderful news for Carl. On the 15th of July 2021, judges in the 10th Circuit Court of Criminal Appeals in Denver upheld Federal Judge Payne's reversal. The state has been given 120 days to make a decision on whether to retry Carl Fontenot. And to sum up a few issues with procedure and protocols surrounding this case, I have included the following information, which comes from Carl Fontenot's second amended habeas corpus petition. So the prosecutorial is the investigative information that the state uses to try its case. Years after the trials were conducted, at least 860 pages of police reports, polygraph reports and witness statements were finally disclosed. This paperwork was all in relation to the Denise Haraway case, and it came from the OSBI, the Ada Police Department and from other agencies. The prosecutorial used by the District Attorney only used 160 or so pages from the total of 860. In January 2014, 263 more pages were disclosed by the OSBI. In 2017, the Pontotoc County District Attorney's file was shown in its entirety. In 2017, the Pontotoc County District Attorney's file was shown in its entirety. These files were a combination of District Attorney investigative reports and ADA Police Department reports that should have been disclosed. Then, in 2019, around 300 pages were produced by the Ada Police Department. The OSBI and the Ada Police Department worked together on the Denise Haraway investigation. Dennis Smith from the APD and Gary Rogers from the OSBI were effectively in charge of the investigation. While the case was a collaborative effort, the two agencies kept separate files of interviews, reports and evidence collected. The preparation to create the prosecutorial for the state was done by the OSBI. This included police reports, witness statements and other documentation that the OSBI felt was relevant for the district attorney to review. The DA would then decide whether to move forward or not. All of the newly discovered documents were not included in the prosecutorial. This means that they weren't available to the defence teams. District Attorney Bill Peterson recognised his obligation to obtain evidence but made no effort to receive the material or to inform law enforcement of its obligations to turn over evidence. Similar to the facts in the Williamson and Fritz case, the defence was denied critical evidence that was exculpatory or impeaching while it remained in the custody of law enforcement. Mr Peterson attempted to satisfy his disclosure obligation by instituting an open-file policy with the Pontotoc County District Attorney's Office. Under that policy, all documentation that was not work product was available for Defence counsel to review pre-trial. As the Haraway investigation concluded, the only documentation the prosecution had was the prosecutorial. Thus, the prosecutor's file was devoid of volumes of relevant and exculpatory evidence that police had gathered, So, in effect, the open file was empty. Peterson took very little active measures to ensure that evidence that must be disclosed to defence was, in fact, given to him by his law enforcement agencies so that he could comply with his constitutional obligations. The Ada Police Department lacked an internal training program at that time. No training was given to officers on understanding or dealing with exculpatory evidence. Policy was said to give total discretion to the detectives or any individual officer to determine what information to turn over to the district attorney. And finally, the OSBI would send its prosecutorial documents through its regional office before it was given to the district attorney. Agent Rogers' immediate supervisor had the ability to edit his reports before they went to Bill Peterson, This created an additional barrier between the lead OSBI agent and the district attorney. And I would like to conclude today's episode with some of my own thoughts on the case. The issues with this case are obvious and numerous. We have the clearly coerced confessions of Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot and the cherry-picked witness statements that never implicated Carl and dubiously implicated Tommy. There is the J.P.'s theory that law enforcement perpetuated from the beginning and the composite of the two men as described by Karen Wise. There was absolutely nothing to tie these men to McAnally's apart from a pickup truck that was never found by police. It was probably never found because the truck at J.P.'s was a completely different vehicle to the one seen at McAnally's. This is backed up by the confusing and differing witness statements of the two trucks. At the time, law enforcement would have had us believe that there was only one banged-up Chevrolet pickup in need of a paint job in Ada at the time. Don't forget that law enforcement also chose to exclude the third and fourth man at JPs from the narration, going as far as to tell witness Karen Wise not to mention them. Prosecutor Bill Peterson made a derogatory comment about Jim Bob Howard, inferring that he had a low IQ and couldn't have committed the crime. Yet the prosecution was content to accept that Carl Fontenot, who had intellectual disabilities, and Tommy Ward, who struggled with literacy, were clever enough to have committed the same crime. The idea that a person would need to have a certain level of education or intelligence to carry out an abduction is ludicrous. There was also the issue of poor police procedure at the McAnally's crime scene. The store was not secured. Officers from different branches of law enforcement walked willy-nilly through the scene, and customers were still able to come and go. Incredibly, Jean Walsh's purchase was allowed to be rung up on the cash register at 9pm. Obvious potential evidence, including the can of beer and the cigarette, were thrown in the bin, and nothing in the store was dusted for fingerprints. If we believe the one-eyed JP's lie... Then there are multiple men who, from the get-go, were a better fit to the composite than Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. Two men who had a verifiable alibi and who had no history of violence. The police reports pertaining to interviews with Billy Charlie had either never been created or they disappeared into thin air. The fact that he owned a grey pickup and that on the night of the 28th of April, his parents may have heard his name over the police scanner meant nothing. Yet police were quick to jump on Tommy Ward, though it was never proven that he had access to such a truck, and he and Carl both gave an alibi that was corroborated by party-goers and police logs. Jeff Miller then walks in with a story implicating Tommy in the crime, and yet his story turned out to be fabricated. What are the chances of somebody making up a story like that, which leads to the right suspect? Tommy is then interviewed and he denies all involvement. Detectives work on him by telling him to imagine this and imagine that, planting ideas and images in Tommy's mind. The following week, Tommy took the lie detector test. He was told that he failed, but there is no evidence of this. Tommy then talks about the disturbing dream he had. In my humble opinion, law enforcement bent and shaped that dream to within an inch of its life before turning out the product that they wanted. Tommy was worn down for close to nine hours. None of the interrogation was taped, but detectives made sure that they filmed the confession at the end. We then had Carl Fontenot confess the next day in a much shorter time frame than Tommy. Carl would later say that he didn't know what the word confession meant. The two men would quickly recant their confessions just like other people who have given a compliant false confession have done before them. Despite Bill Peterson's open-file policy, we know that law enforcement at the time had a very broad definition of what actually constitutes work product and a poor understanding of what exculpatory impeachment and Brady evidence actually mean. As a result, copious amounts of reports and other potential evidence was kept from the defendants and their defence teams. There were even private letters, written by Carl Fontenot to his lawyer, discussing his alibi and plan of action. These letters never made it to his defence team, but instead ended up in the custody of the Ada Police Department. During the trials, dubious jailhouse informants testified for the prosecution, and only some of the witnesses from McAnally's were called to testify. There are multiple men who were in or around the Ada area on the 28th of April 1984 who fit the JP composites and who drove pickup trucks like the one seen at McAnally's. Plenty of these men were known to be shady and violent. A lot of them had dubious or no alibis. However, we can't lay the blame at any one particular person's feet. There is no physical evidence due to poor investigative techniques. And the fact that viable persons of interest were kept hidden from the defence means that the passage of time has virtually eradicated the ability to bring the actual perpetrator or perpetrators to justice. Let's not forget Odell Titsworth and the way that he was inserted into the confessions. How many coincidences are too many coincidences? There are only two possible ways that Odell Titsworth was ever tied to Tommy's confession. The first is that Tommy actually saw Odell in his dream, and the second is that law enforcement mentioned Odell's name to Tommy during the interrogation, perhaps telling Tommy that they knew Odell was the ringleader and that Tommy would be in less trouble if he told them what Odell had made him do. The question is, do you really believe that Odell Titsworth had been in Tommy's dream, or is it more likely that the witness statement given by McAnally's customer, Jimmy Simpson, Is what put Odell on police radar in the first place, and then Tommy was fed the name Odell Titsworth during his untaped interrogation. There was no third man according to the JP's theory, yet detectives knew that Carl and Tommy were friends and that their alibi was the party. Add Odell into the mix, and their theory now includes three men. They were going to make the story work somehow. When Odell was proven to be innocent, it didn't matter. All law enforcement needed was two men to tie to the composites. Carl and Tommy's confessions clashed on most points, yet they both contained the same man that wasn't even there. No physical evidence corroborated either of their stories. When Denise Haraway's remains were finally found, the crime scene was treated with ineptness and unprofessionalism. The scene proved that no part of Tommy and Carl's confessions were legitimate. Finally, there were interviews and police reports that were deemed work product by investigators working the case. The only information that was shown to the defence was the information that the investigators felt was important and which conveniently supported the state's version of events. Police reports and witness statements, which backed up Tommy and Carl's alibi, remained hidden for decades, despite the two men requesting the evidence. Other persons of interest... Pertinent medical report pages and the fact that Denise Haraway had a stalker were all deemed unnecessary tangents and not available to the defence. Then, when we take a broader look at the town of Ada back in the 1980s, we see that multiple innocent men were imprisoned for the most heinous of crimes. Two of these four cases contain so-called dream confessions. Dream confessions are extremely rare and to have two of them occur in the same town under the same investigators is highly suspicious. In the true crime world, we always hear about justice for the victims, and rightly so. But what happens when the wrong person or people are incarcerated for a crime that they had no part in? Do we have less compassion for them because they falsely confessed? Why don't we take a closer look at the people and the practices that elicited those confessions in the first place? What kind of society do we live in where the truth is pushed aside in order to reach a conviction? Shouldn't truth come before justice, or at least walk hand in hand with it? And let's not forget the ultimate victim in this case, Donna Denise Haraway. Where's her justice? I hope that you have enjoyed today's episode. There is a Facebook page you can join called Free Tommy Ward if you would like to give Tommy and his family and friends some love and support. If you would like to support me and my podcast, then please go ahead and leave a rating and review on your chosen podcasting platform. Have a wonderful day, stay safe, take care, and I will meet you next time in Crime Valley.